0: Good morning. Uh, our scripture reading today is Psalm 60, so I'll give you a moment to find that uh, in your Bible. Oh God, you've rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made, made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sakoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our, an- with our armies. O grant us help a- against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Thank you, John. Each summer, as we step back into the Psalms, we like to remind ourselves of why this is such an amazing book within the book. And today, what I wanna call your attention to is the transforming power of song. So you think about the value of the book of Psalms, think about the transforming, the life-giving, the life sustaining power of singing. And one particular feature of that, uh, sub feature of that, would be that there's power in singing your abandonment. One of the reasons we were given the Psalms. Uh, One of the reasons we were given the psalms of lament especially is to discover the power of singing your way through suffering. Singing your way through rejection. Singing your voicing your very real sense that God you don't feel like you're anywhere close by right now. You feel a million miles away. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the power of music um, on you as you listen to it. Because we would all agree, music is incredibly powerful. Like we feel the music, we sense the power of the music, and you know the phantom of the opera carries us away. It's true, but I'm not talking about that this morning. I'm not talking about the power of music on you. I'm talking about the power of music in you As you with your own voice begin to vocalize and sing and voice your trouble and your suffering and your brokenness. I want to give you a cultural example from our own American history and on a day when we want to celebrate all of the best that is America um, this illustration will remind us that freedom in our country is for every single person. I, wanna, I want you to think about the power to voice your struggle in song, and I want you to hear from uh, Frederick Douglass, life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. Some of you read this in high school, some of you in college, maybe uh, it's been a while for you. But he's, at this point, educated himself, even under threat, uh, made his way out of slavery and has been freed and is now in the north and he's becoming a rather influential person in the abolitionist movement. Incredibly insightful. This is his autobiographical account of what it was like to be a slave for years and years and to suffer in slavery. Here's what he says music, and especially song. Here's what he says song meant to his suffering people. Listen to this. So on their way to the big house to get their monthly food allowance, while they were on their way, they would make, they would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at the same time their highest joy and their deepest sadness. I've sometimes thought to myself that the mere hearing of those songs would do more to impress some minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of volumes on the subject. I did not, when when enslaved, understand the deep meaning of those songs. but he has since understood more. Here's what he says, they told a tale, the songs told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud and long and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterness of anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer for deliverance from those chains. The mere recurrence of those songs, even now, afflicts me while I'm writing. An expression of feeling has already found its way, running down my cheek. To those songs I trace my first glimmering concept of the dehumanizing character of slavery. If anyone wishes to be impressed with the soul-killing effects of slavery, let him go to Colonel Lloyd's plantation, this was his own experience, And on allowance day, place himself in the deep pine woods, and there let him in silence analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of his soul. And if he's not impressed, it will only be because there is no life in his stone-cold heart. I've often been utterly astonished since I came to the north to find that people could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It's impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. That, he says, is my experience at least. Singing your pain and suffering as a group of people is not unique in the Bible. History is filled with cultural examples. We could multiply all over, we could multiply examples over and over again throughout history on every continent in every people group, because every person in the world is an image bearer. And there is within us a desire to cry out for justice, to sing, to hope for, to voice justice. So we could, so this is not unique among the Bible, that people would learn to sing their abandonment. But what is unique to the Bible, and the black Christians who suffered horrifying injustices in the American slave culture certainly knew this. What is unique in the Bible is a growing sense that God alone can deliver me. That God alone will make all wrongs right. That God alone will deal with injustice. That is unique to the Bible. Psalm 60, then, is as good as any psalm in the book to teach us how to sing our abandonment. So the psalm has four movements. Let me just trace them for you, and then we'll walk through so you get a sense of what's happening. Verses 1, 2, and 3, there's a sense of divine abandonment. God, where are you? Then verses 4 and 5, a prayer for rescue. Then verses 6, 7, and 8, a word of promise that serves as an answer to prayer. And then the psalm closes 9 through 12 with this beautiful fresh dependence and reliance on God the psalm really moves from abandonment to abandonment from divine abandonment a sense God where are you to personal abandonment and total surrender God I trust you that's the movement that's where we're going Number one, divine abandonment. Look at verses one, two, and three. And I, I don't want to spend a lot of time reconstructing the background of the geopolitical context and the military campaign. You get a hint at it in the title. This is one of the longest titles. It might be the longest title that you have in front of the psalm. You know, these inscriptions that came later uh, are you know they give us some background. They're not they're not the word of God, but they're explanatory notes that try to help us give context. And so. You get that in Psalm 60, and, and there's a lot of background here, and there's different ways to read this in terms of background. But what is important for you to know, and what everybody agrees about, is that when this psalm is written, David is ruling in the promised land, and the territory of God's people is being threatened. And it's especially being threatened by Edom. It seems like Israel is always at war with Edom. And so apparently when David and his military force, his main forces with him, including his main general, Joab, when they are, they are uh, outside of Judah, Edom sneaks in the back door from the south. That is one way to construct this psalm. And the devastation of that is in verses 1, 2, and 3. God, where are you? The abandonment. So look at this with me. Oh God, verse 1, you've rejected us. Why have you rejected us? We thought we were your people. We thought, we, we thought our city was your city. Thought the house of David was something you were doing. Oh God, you've rejected us and broken our defenses. Have you been angry with us? Oh, restore us. You've even made the land to quake and you've torn it open. Repair its breaches for its It's tottering, like the very land we thought you gave us, that you promised us, is is sort of tottering like, like 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 a landslide that's about to just give way. What's happening, God? You've made your people see really hard things. We didn't want to look at these things. You've even given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The wine of astonishing hardship. Why are you doing this? So we feel a sense of divine abandonment. Their plight, writes Derek Kidner, their plight is desperate. The outward crisis is matched by an inward confusion and shock. So the long-term effect of this song is that as a community of God's people, they find freedom. Listen to this. They find freedom in voicing their abandonment. They find a freedom not in ignoring as if, as if things aren't wrong, not in, not in denial. They don't, they don't find any freedom in denial. They don't find any freedom in neglect. They don't find any freedom. They find freedom. The long-term effect of this psalm is that God's people find freedom in voicing, God, where are you right now? Many of us have been taught not to question God. And that's not entirely good. There is a way to cry out in faith, even when faith feels gone, with a sense of abandonment. The second long-term effect of this psalm for God's people as it unfolds, is to bring them from that place of abandonment to a place of deep love and faithfulness to the God who has not abandoned. And we'll see that in just a second. So that's the movement of the song: From a place of confusion and divine abandonment to a place of deep trust and personal surrender. So that's where we're headed. Number two, um, the, the psalm moves from verses one, two, and three, that first stanza, into a prayer because really there's nowhere else to go except to pray when you feel divine abandonment that's a great reminder that the place of deepening trust and personal surrender always begins where on your knees in prayer and so verse, like the whole psalm is a prayer, right? It's a song of praise, and it's a prayer to God, but especially verses four and five. Now verse four, uh, there's a question about verse four as to whether or not it fits better in verses one through three, first stanza, or whether verse four fits better into the second, in the second stanza, and you can see that question arise if you look at the, the selah there. The selah that's attached is that sort of pregnant pause and it's put there as an indication that verse 4 may be as much connected to verses 1, 2, and 3 as it is verse 5. So whether you put it there or you couple it together with verses 4 and 5 as we are here today, I think the effect of it is that you're, you're seeing it form the prayer um, It it contributes to, it describes, in fact, it may even describe in metaphorical terms what it is to pray, to flee to the banner. So let me me explain that, verses 4 and 5. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Give salvation by your right hand, and it brings salvation. God, that's, that is, that's the prayer, like, that's the prayer proper in this psalm. That is the cry. Save us, O oh God. Help us. That's how we pray. Now backing up to verse 4, let me give you a little more on this, on this banner imagery and how the, the poetry of the psalm is working, what David is saying. So you'll notice in verse 4 it says, you have set up a banner. Now mark the you because in verses 1, 2, and 3, you, you, there's no question to, as to what's the background here in David's mind. It's not like there are other factors at work in David's mind. The writer of this psalm, he's saying you have abandoned us. You have rejected. You, you, look at this in verses one, two, and three over and over again. You did this, you did this, you did this. Now we come to verse four. The same you, but you've also set up a banner for those who fear you. So here's how this works. We're in a military context, obviously in the psalm, and in the middle of the battle, When defeat looks as if it is certain, just imagine in your mind's eye, in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the battlefield, and it looks like it is over and defeat is certain. All of a sudden, kind of right in the middle of it, up goes this beautiful royal banner that signifies a warrior is in the house. And all of the troops out in front who are, who are not sure what to do because they're being threatened by defeat, they flee back to the banner. And all of the troops behind who are intimidated by what's happening right now, they move forward to the banner. And so you have the whole battlefield kind of collapsing in this imagery around the banner that is this royal banner that's been unfurled in the middle of the field. And it signifies the divine warrior. The great warrior is here. It's a beautiful picture. The great warrior is here, like imagine striding into the battlefield, this amazing great warrior on a majestic horse, a guy who's known no defeat. David says, God is the divine warrior. He is the one to whom you can flee. He is the one to whom you can run. And the godly are those who fear him above all else who retreat back and who move forward and who consolidate and collapse right there, all moving together to unite at the banner for those who fear him. To pray then is to run. This is the way poetry works, this is the way the metaphor works. In, in, and so the psalmist and, and good songwriters do this all the time. Here's the way it works. To pray then is to run to God's banner and be surrounded by his protection because everything else feels like it's falling apart. Everything else in the world feels like it can't be trusted. Everything I, I feel, I even felt abandoned by you, God, until I was reminded to run to the banner of the great warrior who is faithful and who will bring salvation by his right hand and answer us you've set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee from the enemy and then verse 5 gives the reason for why God would answer this prayer you see if you can find it at the very beginning of verse 5 the reason for why God would answer this prayer that your beloved ones might be delivered. Why would God answer this prayer? Why would he save us and rescue us? It is not because of your size as a nation. It's not because of your moral goodness as a people. You need the commandments. Not because of your size, not because of your influence, not because of your moral goodness, not because you will persevere in the wilderness, not because of any of those things. It's only because I've set my affection on you, Deuteronomy 7, and I've made you my people, and I am making you my people. You are my beloved. The only reason you could expect and hope for God to answer your prayer in the midst of this abandonment is that he doesn't ever stop loving you. And he never will. And he never will. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, but you don't know what I've said to God. You don't know the hurt that's in my heart that I have said back to the God I felt like rejected me. You don't know that. I don't know that. But I know this. It's nothing in comparison to his unrivaled love for you. Nothing will threaten that. Nothing will threaten that. Don't you listen to the lies that are coming. Verse 5: Circle that word that your beloved ones may be delivered, that the ones on whom you have set your affection as a people would be delivered, that you would give salvation by your right hand and answer us. So that's the prayer for rescue. That is the soil out of which prayer grows, a sure and certain confidence that God loves his people and, and as you sing and you pray, so look, here's the thing. As you sing and as you pray your abandonment, as you sing and as you pray your rejection, as you feel that and sing it and voice it, the healing begins. The healing begins. And you can be confident in a prayer of rescue like this. And, then, and here's the third point. So, how, how will God answer this prayer? David says, amazingly, he already has. He already has. As he recalls the promise of old that God is making a people, that God, has, that God has set aside a land, and that he's making a people for himself in that land. And so what's happening in verse 6, it's called a divine oracle. It's called a, a spoken word. It's called a, a voiced promise, right? So verses 6, 7, and 8 become a, a promise that brings confidence to God's people. So look at the way the text reads, the beginning of verse 6 God has spoken in His holiness. Now what that means, in His holiness, might be a little bit misleading to you. Um, It's not so much a reference to His character as to where He has spoken from. He has spoken from the place of separation and transcendence and sinless holy sanctuary. Some of you have a translation that says He's spoken from His sanctuary. He's spoken from heaven. What David has in mind is that God is way out there, untouchable, holy, beautiful, glorious, but he has spoken here to us in a promise. He has surely spoken. And what did he promise? He promised that he's making a people and he's giving them a land. And so this these few verses, 6, 7, and 8, recall that promise and beautifully stroke in broad strokes uh, a a picture of of how powerful God is to accomplish His will. So in verses 6 and 7, he rolls out the promise of Israel's inheritance of the land, the land that God will use to make His people. He's basically speaking from heaven. One commentator wrote, He thunders from heaven that the whole earth is mine and no enemy stands a chance. Let me remind you of that, he says. God has spoken with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem, a portion of the veil of Seccoth. I will portion out rather, the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is mine, Judah is mine. So basically what's happening is in just a few broad strokes, the history of Israel is being recaptured, and the fulfillment of it is being promised. And Israel's presence in the world is cast in light of the promise to fulfill that, that Israel is a light to all the nations So so verses six and seven describe uh, the, the, the promised land like Shechem and Succoth on either side of the Jordan, the first parts of the promised land, Gilead, the Israelite territory east of the Jordan, the tribe of Manasseh straddling the river, Ephraim and Judah, the principal tribes of the west. So basically you have this sketching of the whole promised land and then in contrast to that, you have the land of the nations to whom Israel is supposed to be a beautiful influence and on whom they're supposed to influence. And so that's why he says in verse 7, um, verse 8 rather, that's why you have Moab and Edom and Philistia, not the promised land. Edom, Moab and Edom and Philistia, um, not yet acquired in the promised land, I should say it that way, not yet acquired as God's kingdom is expanding, right? And so, basically, the way verse 8 works is it's to say, these other nations that are not yielding to me, they're still mine. Moab is like my wash basin. Uh, uh, Edom, Upon Edom I cast my shoe. It's like, he's, you know, when you get home, you kick your shoes off, you're like, you like, you're say, hey, listen, this is my place. This is my house. I own this too. God just, just says, I'm, this is mine. Don't ever forget that. You know, people all over the place right now are wondering, what's happening in the world? What's happening to America? Is God still there? Is he still in charge? Yes. He is still sovereign. He says, the whole earth is mine. Moab is like my wash basin. Edom is like where I kick off my shoes. This is my place. It's where I, I am at home. Philistia, I will shout in triumph over the Philistines. This is God saying every square inch of the world is mine. And what it does, it's twofold. It says David is the messianic figure who is still at work, leading, right, as king. He's leading as the, uh, the the Messiah king is leading his people, and the kingdom is expanding. It says that for sure, but it also says David is a picture of who? Jesus Christ and the whole earth. And every land will one day bow its knee and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is the Messiah one day Jesus will cast his shoes off and every single place on this earth will be his and the prince of the power of the air will no longer have authority over these places. So this is a promise. This is a beautiful promise. This is a like this fires David up. This deepens his roots. This says David. David's starting to feel renewal. By the time you get to the end of the song, David is feeling afresh and, and he wants his people to feel this and he wants every other person who will ever sing and embrace this psalm to feel this. I have now moved from abandonment. We have moved from abandonment to... A place of personal abandonment and freedom and fresh dependence and total surrender. And that's where verses 9 through 12 take us. The final section of the psalm brings it full circle from an abandonment that you would never choose for yourself, from an abandonment we would never choose. To a place of personal abandon and surrender, that we must choose to live a life of faith. You can't live a life of faith. This is like, this is at the heart of the gospel. You can't live a life of faith until you come to this place, this crisis, when you feel rejection and abandonment, and then somehow, in the mysterious, beautiful will of God, you end up coming to this place I will trust you blessed be the name of the lord who gives and takes away who gives and takes away my heart will choose to say lord blessed be your name linda jones right now is learning to say blessed be your name Linda's learning a fresh dependence on the Lord in the midst of this incredibly powerful season of suffering. This song is an invitation for you. Listen. This song is an invitation for you to learn how to discover, to sing your rejection, to sing your suffering, to sing your, your abandonment, and what David's, what, what's happened to David is that now David is getting ready to go back into the battle. Now he's got a sense of readiness, the, the, the readiness of a fresh dependence, not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, right? David is ready to go back into the battle because now he's confident, not in himself, but he's confident in what God is doing. So verses 9 through 12 go like this. Who will bring me to the fortified city? I'm not going up there by myself. I mean, David's the greatest warrior of Israel at this time. Does he need somebody to hold his hand? Does David need someone to tell him it's going to be okay, a hold, another warrior to hold his hand and, and, and encourage him to go into battle? Absolutely not. David doesn't need that. He needs God. So he says, who, God? This is rhetorical. This is a rhetorical question. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me? I know now that the battle belongs to the Lord, and I will go up. <laughs> Have you rejected us, O God? Again, I think that's rhetorical. I don't think that's a relapse. I think that's rhetorical. Uh, When he says, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Oh, no more. No more. I will go forward. I will go forward. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. David is not trusting in himself. With God, we shall do valiantly. He will tread down. Our foes. David has discovered a fresh dependence in personal abandonment. That is where some of you need to go today. To really believe that it's worth singing your abandonment, singing your rejection. I want to return to the value of singing as a people. And, and, and let me ask you to, to think about this with me because it is so important for you to voice. It is so important for you to voice and sing. Um, some of you would say, you've said it to John, you've said it to me, I've heard it so many times. You don't want to hear me sing. Well, maybe not. But God does. And we should want what God wants. And when you voice your rejection, your sense of rejection, your sense of God, where are you? When you voice that, your faith is becoming more real than ever before. It is not real, deep, genuine faith if it's just good faith when the sun is shining. When everything's as it should be, blessed be His name. That's not biblical faith, when it's simply in the good times. When you sing week in and week out, I'm talking about the act of actually singing congregationally with the people of God. When you sing week in and week out, you are training yourself for the hard times that are coming and they are surely coming. You're training yourself for the rejection, for the abandonment, for the trouble, for the suffering, for the brokenness. You're training yourself because we live in a fallen world, not as a direct, immediate judgment of God, why has this happened to me? How come, she got, how come he got cancer? Why is this happening to my family? We live in a fallen world. It is coming, not even as a direct judgment from God. It's simply the recurring injustices and oppression and brokenness and mistreatment that is surely coming your way. When you sing, when you sing with this church family week in and week out, when you are willing to vocalize from your body and soul uh, and, and, and sing as if it matters to you, when you do that, you are training yourself to, you're preparing yourself for the hard stuff that is coming. And that is a beautiful thing. Because when you sing, you're pressing the gospel into a part of your life and and, and, and into, when you sing, you're pressing the gospel into the deep recesses of who you are. If you're not willing to voice those things, it will be to your own, it'll be to your own deficit. but even if, you, even if you don't have a great voice, and how many of us in here do? Come on, let's be real. You don't know, have a great voice. Even if you don't have a good voice, you have a beautiful song. It's the gospel song. And when you say it and sing it, you're convincing yourself. I believe this. This matters. To, this, is tra- this has got transforming power. And it produces a fresh dependence in your heart and soul and your life, and you will get a your Christianity will become characteristically mature. You, when your Christianity starts to to feel this and absorb this and 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 it and it starts to transform you, you're going to mature in your faith, and it's going to be amazing. And people are going to see it, and it's going to strengthen the church. It's gonna strengthen you, it's gonna strengthen your family. People are gonna be like, what, what in the heck happened to him? Did I just say heck in church, David? We're getting a little edgy here at the cave. What in the heck happened to him? He's out there in the middle of his brokenness, and he's singing, he's singing. She's singing in the midst of rejection. And when this happens to you, the approval of people will begin to melt away. The fragile relationships that are... And on and on and on. Your faith will mature. You will mature as a person. And you will discover a fresh dependence. You will learn how to move from this sense of rejection to a fresh dependence. We should pray for that this morning. And just silently, well, or maybe just quietly so you could activate your voice. Quietly right now, pray with me and ask God to teach you how to sing your trouble, how to sing your abandonment, how to sing your suffering. Lord, we ask you to even in this moment activate our voices that we might prove the gospel to be sure and true that we might prove we are your beloved ones and the love and affection of God rest on us so much so that you want to deliver and rescue and save So help us to sing, the Lord is my salvation. Help us to sing as if we mean that, as if it were true, that there's none like you who's strong to save and faithful in love. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's sing together.